Hello, welcome to The Brand Called You, where we converse with the future. Today, the brand is Rakesh Call. Rakesh Call has been like an elder brother to me. He was the gold medalist from IIT Delhi uh, several years before I went there. He was uh, at Brown University where he was one of the first people to study solar cells. And then he got his MBA from University of Chicago. He spent a successful and a very rapid rise in companies like Beatrice Food, Shackley, and then Finger Hut. Uh, then he served as the CEO of Hanover Direct, which was a billion dollar direct marketing and uh, catalog firm. But not just that, he has spent many years now serving on boards of many different companies as advisor to one of the largest private equity firms in the world, uh, as well as he has got a rich uh, dimension on the creative arts side. We'll talk a little bit about his books. He has written two, uh, Dawn, which is the newest book, and uh, something that I completed last week, well, last weekend. It's a fantastic book because it covers the, the core of um, Indian system on how do you really become an effective person and overcome unsur unsurmountable obstacles. He has also written a book called The Last Queen of Kashmir, which is a history of the female, last female ruler queen of Kashmir from uh, 14th century. Rakesh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sandeep. It's nice to be here with you. And uh, uh, thank you for that very warm introduction also. It's good to be here. The first question I want to ask you, uh, Rakesh, in your journey, you were one of the first few Indians who, outside the stereotypical path that Indians have followed through IT and technology, rose to the heights of American corporate life uh, through your expertise in marketing. How was it to be a marketing leader in an Indian-born marketing leader in corporate America uh, in 80s, 90s, in that period? So, uh, you know, I've always uh, had a spirit of inquiry in my life. When I was growing up in India, the force for good was technology. The technocrat in those days was an aspirational role to have because they were seen as change agents that could bring India into modern times. So I went to IIT Delhi, I came to Brown University, and while I was at Brown, I learned that there was something equally powerful as technology, which was capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so even though I got admitted to Stanford and Harvard, I went to the Temple of Capitalism called the University of Chicago. And there I learned about free markets and uh, economic theory and business, and fundamentally all the arms of capitalism. But while I was at the University of Chicago, I learned that at the core of capitalism, is this notion of the free consumer. It's the American consumer who exercises free choice. That's really the engine of the economy, and the economy becomes a centerpiece of the political system, and the political system then is what grants you legal rights. And 
you know, that uh, America is a country with great rights. So that's what led to my uh, career change into wanting to go into consumer marketing. And when I went into consumer marketing, I was the only person that I knew of uh, in that space. And uh, my very brilliant uh, colleagues uh, from the MBA program, uh, they were sort of jumping uh, jobs every two to three years mm -hmm. because they were impatient, they were young, they wanted to make big money. I didn't do that. Uh, I built my career at Beatrice Foods uh, with a simple mantra. I became known, my brand at that time was, he's the guy you give the biggest problem that the company is facing. And the title was created to put me into that role. So I just went from one position to the next position, and but I was basically solving problems. If uh, the problem that brought me into the company was one of energy conservation, well, then that's the title I got. And uh, uh, if the problem was how do you grow, then I became title director of corporate development. Mm -hmm. So I went up that uh, ranks. I was, I think, amongst the first five Indian CEOs. We cracked the glass ceiling. And uh, I'm glad I went there because that sort of led me ultimately to also having a creative side to me. We'll talk about your creative side in, in just a minute. Uh, but continuing that path of, you know, you were, it seems like very early on became a general generalist, mm -hmm. uh, whatever needed to be solved, you solved it. Mm -hmm. And I know since then, uh, you have become an investor advisor, a, a vice counsel to many entrepreneurs, businesses, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, private equity funded companies. How do you decide which companies to participate in and which um, entrepreneurs to partner up with or, or bring into your network or fold? What are the characteristics you look for? So, like real estate, uh, you know, it's the entrepreneur, entrepreneur, entrepreneur. Uh, I don't really at all look at the financial projections. I don't look at the business plan. Mm. Uh, and the reason is this. Uh, I've done a lot of innovation. And what you realize is innovation is basically, and this is just a Rakesh call mm. <laughs> perspective, mm. innovation is basically staggering from one near-death experience to another near-death experience. <laughs> um, right? Mm. In terms of the risk that you're taking. In terms of the risk that you're taking. And so uh, early stage entrepreneurship, you know, I don't play in the world of, you know, uh, the world where entrepreneurs go and get big checks where somebody writes 100 million. I, I don't, you know, that's not my world. My world is basically uh, an entrepreneur who's got a dream, who has expertise. So this dream is not uh, a fantasy, but a dream that's a vision that's based on knowledge, deep insight. And uh, then I really look at the character. Does this person have the character that uh, they will stick to it? All the investments I have made, these entrepreneurs, the kind of sacrifices they have made to pursue their dream, the kind of humility, the kind of uh, commitment they have made, I mean, I'm in awe of each one of them. Uh, 
And uh, then the other thing is, can I strike a good relationship with them? Because to mentor them, mentorship is a two-way process. Mm -hmm. It's not about any great insights or intelligence. It's about them having the trust in you that they'll come, they'll open up, and they're willing to use you as a sounding board. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not smarter than them, but the fact that they're willing to trust me mm -hmm. and that I can in some way be a sounding board, that, that's important. And the third thing is, are they willing to learn and reinvent themselves? Because if an entrepreneur gets stuck, then the near death becomes death. But if the entrepreneur is willing to constantly reinvent themselves in the early stages, then success is assured. So that's what I look for. And so, so far it's worked very well. Changing gears to the creative part now, mm -hmm. uh, you have used the term in, in your book, Granthika Storyteller. I'm and a Granthika. Yes. I'm a Granthika, yeah. What does that mean? And um, how did this journey start from being a corporate executive to investor, mentor, board member? Where? How does it lead to being a storyteller or a Granthika? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a real life answer to that. Uh, we were uh, uh, at the home of a uh, very successful Indian by the name of P.C. Chatterjee. Mm -hmm. And all the leaders of the Indo-American community were there because they were attending the wedding of a mutual friend of yours, mm -hmm. his daughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, these are all billionaires, <laughs> very successful people. And they, we were all going around and they asked me, so what's next? Because I was, and I, I said to them, I want to run the second half of my life very differently than the first half. And they said, what is it about the second half that's going to be different than the first half? And I said, you know, when I look at the first half, it's fundamentally, it was about conquering space. You want a bigger empire, you want to be global, but it's space. It's materialism in space. And so I want to switch, and now I want to conquer time. And I said, because they looked at me in the same way mm. as to what does it mean to conquer time? What so does I it mean to conquer, conquer time? time? So mm. I said, you know, I went back and I looked at what is it that is the longest lived entity that you can create. And uh, it's not endowments, much as people give endowments, and endowments are good. Uh, it turns out surprisingly, at least in my case, what intrigued me was that the longest lived creations of human beings are stories. Mm. That the most ancient story is probably around 10,000 years old. And stories are the living consciousness that outlive everything else. And so it's not surprising that in Sanskrit, the, word, uh, the term akshar, alphabet, is also synonymous with the term. The mm -hmm. word is a term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from that uh, realization, now I said, oh, oh my God, I have to become a storyteller. I don't know anything. I, I'm all right brain. Now i got to work on my left brain. But it's okay. You know, again, it's about when you have that spirit of wanting to reinvent yourself. You reinvented uh, to become a Granthika. Uh, a, and Granthika so, means a storyteller? Yeah, so, so it's uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, until the advent of TV, uh, you basically, in India, 
had Granthakas who traveled from village to village to village. I mean, nobody knew the Ramayana. Nobody knew the Mahabharata. Uh-huh. The Granthakas were the ones who traveled and they'd go to a village, uh, they'd be given a place, they'd be fed food. But in the evening when the farmers had done their work and there was a break time, they'd all gather under the tree. And under the people tree, the Granthaka would then tell the stories. I see. And so uh, I am the first uh, Indian uh, who has who writes in the English language, but I use Indian literary principles. Mm-hmm. So there are many great English authors, many far greater than me, but I'm the one who writes using Indian literary principles. Mm-hmm. And now you've picked to tell the first two stories. Uh, first, Kota Rani, which is uh, in 1400, 14th century, mm-hmm. and the next one, Dawn, which mm-hmm. is set in 3000 AD. Right. Two stories. Yeah. Um, hundreds of years from today, yeah. either back or forward, and two female protagonists. Yes. Is there a connection? Where did you pick these two stories to tell? So, uh, Kashmir actually uh, has the distinction that the word Sahitya was coined in Kashmir. Literature was coined in Kashmir. Uh, it was coined by the aesthetician uh, Kuntaka. So, Kashmir has had, among other things, two great traditions. Uh, one is called Kavya Itihasa, which is the history. And Kashmir has a distinction of having the longest written history anywhere in the world. The Raj Tarangani series, which starts with Kalhana, followed by Jona Raja, followed by Srivara, and then others. So it's a written record of people that spans, you know, a longer period of time than any other place in the world. Older than Judaic civilization, older than Japan. It's a fascinating thing. But more interestingly, it has a other tradition which is called Shloka Katha, the Katha, the story. So Kotarani was my contribution in the Itihasa and Dawn, and certainly we can talk a little bit more about why Dawn uh, was in the Shloka Katha genre. Now, the reason I have picked uh, two women characters is that uh, it has nothing actually to do with gender, even though they are genders. Uh, in the Indian framework, the Hindu framework, uh, for whatever reason, life energy, mm-hmm. life energy was given the uh, feminine gender, Shakti. The Shakti. So it was given a feminine gender, but uh, we have as much Shakti mm-hmm. as the women do. Mm-hmm. So it just happened to be a feminine thing. But interestingly, uh, Kashmir's civilization uh, was unique that uh, uh, women were uh, in some ways superior to men. So uh, it was not lip service that you're a goddess. I mean, mm-hmm. we still will say you're a goddess too, but it was practical. Practical in the sense that uh, children were known by their women. By their maternal name. By their women name. So, okay. so for example, Ganesha would never be described as Shiva's son. Mm-hmm. Ganesha would be described as Parvati Putra. Okay. Okay. So that was sort of the first thing. Second, it had more queens mm-hmm. that were sovereigns, not just wives of kings, but
but sovereign than any other place on earth. Yeah. And third, because of the Shakti thing, uh, they were the me messengers to higher truths. So you could not sit in a prayer without the woman next to you. The woman had to be next to you because she was your messenger to the higher truths. And I can go on and talk about other things. But so because of the significance of women and the feminine energy, I picked uh, protagonists. And then, of course, women are beautiful, so it helps to have a character who's beautiful. Okay. Um, the other thing that's common in both these books is Kashmir. Mm -hmm. uh, they are linked to Kashmir in some history, mm -hmm. historical or future perspective. Right. Um, the story of Kashmiri people, especially Kashmiri Hindus, mm -hmm. um, has been one of, and you cover some of it in both books directly or indirectly, is being uh, one of persecution. Yes. I mean, in the last 500 years. Not right. 5,000, but 500. 500 yeah. years. In, in the breadth of what you have uh, covered, that's been one of yeah. the themes. And it is also defining, in some sense, mm -hmm. characteristics of last 20, 30 years. Has that created a particular mindset in Kashmiri Hindus in your mind? And I know you have helped a lot of them and you've been instrumental in helping them, particularly from U.S., uh, has that shaped the thinking of Kashmiri Hindus and does it create a mindset like the Jewish nation has, which has also suffered a lot of persecution over time? Um, and do you think that shapes their personalities and thinking now? In a positive I way or a limiting way? I would not way? compare the Kashmiri Pandits uh, uh, to the Jews, even though some do. I think uh, there are lots of commonalities. Uh, in fact, one interesting commonality, which I have written an article about, is that in the Temple of Solomon, uh, incense is well, used to be burned regularly. It's called Keteret. Mm -hmm. And uh, the formula of Keteret was laid out by Moses. And it's followed very religiously. And there are Jewish rabbis whose sole role through history has been to make the Keteret, which is the sacred incense. The incense uh, formula was given by Moses. Yeah. Wow. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that one third of the, uh, by weight of the Keteret uh, is uh, a substance called Kostas, Kot. And at that time, it was only grown in Kashmir. Hmm. There's some linkage there between uh, the people. Yeah, so there are lots of commonalities. That's a separate topic we can talk about one day. Uh, a lot of commonalities. But I don't think there are similarities. Because I think that for the Kashmiri Pandits right now, uh, they are still, uh, the modern uh, contemporary Kashmiri Pandits, they're still in such a state of trauma. Uh, they're still uh, they're still not come to grips at what has happened. In fact, many of them just want to flee away. Mm. Many of them want to say, look, I found a home somewhere, I found security somewhere, I have a good life because I'm bright and I'm personable and I've been trained by my culture uh, to be very adaptable. I just want to find happiness in that. I don't want to rake up. I don't want to rake up the past because it's too painful. And it really is very, very painful past mm -hmm. in the recent times. It is just so 
it was just a past of such horror and the world doesn't really know it. I mean, uh, you know, most uh, people uh, would meet a Kashmiri Pandit and say, okay, these are nice people, they're non-violent, they're bright, their kids are great, uh, wives are beautiful. So uh, that's the image, but nobody will ever get a Kashmiri Pandit to open up and say, tell me, what was your journey? That conversation, even their fellow colleagues won't have with them because they see a symbol of what they would like to be. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't know the horror. Uh, for example, if I was to just describe uh, my family's uh, life history, uh, people would say, oh my God, so this was part of your family memory? What horror? Did you would you care to share something? Yeah, I can spend a few minutes. I mean, I can just talk a little bit about my family history and uh, why I sort of gravitate towards supporting entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, my father uh, uh, grew up uh, in a middle-class household. Uh, not much money, some land, uh, profession that kept them alive. He was a lawyer. And for whatever reason, uh, I don't know why, uh, he was uh, the British resident in Kashmir thought he was just a great guy. Mm -hmm. And so the British resident recommended him and he got admitted to the Imperial College of Science and Technology. Mm -hmm. The first Kashmiri, I don't know about Indian, but certainly the first Kashmiri to have that honor. And uh, nobody had any money, but nobody cared because everybody knew that my father would go around town and people would chip in to send the son to this prestigious, to this prestigious thing. Institution. And so, I mean, I, when my mother died, I went through my letters and the, I, I have that letter of admission from the father. So he got uh, then a follow-up letter and said, Mr. Call, uh, we're delighted, obviously, to admit you. You received that notification, uh, but the semester, I mean, the school started why don't you come next year? Mm -hmm. And then you can prepare because you have to go to Bombay and then take the steamer from Bombay to London. So that made evident sense. My mm -hmm. father thought that he'd get his act together. Well, that never came because next year the tribal raiders came. Mm -hmm. And so my family decided that at least one person had to be outside the state in case they had to flee. My father was the youngest boy. He came, he landed in the railway station. And he had no money. Mm -hmm. He had no money. And somebody saw this young man, asked a story and said, come work in my shop. They figured he's a good looking kid. Work in my shop. I'll pay you some money. I'll give you food and you can sleep. You know, in those Indian shops, mm -hmm. they have a little space upstairs. Yeah. And that's what my father did for three months. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got no money. Mm -hmm. And then he quickly figured out that this shopkeeper was basically going to make him Taking advantage, indentured yeah. slave, right? Yeah. Figure, yeah. He works, but that's no money. So eventually my father left. Fast forward, my family from both sides, we had a lot of lands. In 19, you know, they did the land to Tiller Act. They took away all of the lands. That went away. Then they passed a rule that the majority in Kashmir Valley is the minority mm -hmm. under the Indian minority law. 
So now none of these people could get educated in the valley. So all of my family members had to go out of the valley to get educated because they couldn't get jobs there. They couldn't get education in the Western Then in 1990 came the final blow. Yeah, there was mass exodus. There was mass exodus. And so, you know, virtually no Indian really understands the magnitude of genocide for profits that occurred. Mm. Nobody understands that. There were maybe about 100,000 family, or maybe 400,000 people who fled, maybe four family, 100,000 homes. Today, even if I ascribe a value of two and a half crores, because you and I are business people, and that's on the low side for a home in Kashmir, Srinagar with land, everybody has two and a half crores. That's a two and a half lakh windfall genocide profit in today's terms. Two and a half lakh crores today, $35 billion. Mm-hmm. They took away one and a half lakh acres of land in the land of Tilden Estate. Mm-hmm. Even if I say that's 500 rupees per square foot, that is $35 billion. Mm-hmm. Not every Kashmir has that story. And, so and it's understandable why they want to put the trauma behind them mm-hmm. and never talk about it. But when you put the trauma behind, it also makes it uh, distant and uh, unrecognizable to the new generation and to people. So um, I think with time, maybe hopefully acceptance will come and uh, uh, of this is the past and then you can deal with it. But that's... Um, so my my basic message in both my novels is is that uh, the worst will bring out the best in you, and so the renaissance and resurgence of Kashmiri pundits around the world is the greatest miracle of humanity, greatest story of humanity, and both my novels I do celebrate the Kashmir that in the 18th and 19th century, before the mess of India and Kashmir started, Kashmir was described not by me, not by Indians, not by Hindutvatis, but by the best European scholars as the cradle of human civilization. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it was health with Ayurveda, Charaka did it, Shushruta was the surgeon, whether it was yoga with Patanjali, whether it's Sanskrit grammar with Panani, Pingala did binary numbers 1,800 years before the West knew about it, Fibonacci series. Uh, When it comes to the aesthetics, which Sheldon Pollock says is India's greatest contribution to humanity, Bharata did Natya Shastra, that was followed by Abhinav Gupta, Rasa theory. Indians don't understand the technology, the biochemistry of Rasa. They just don't know what a potent force it is. I explored that in Dawn. Then uh, when it comes to music and combinatorial theory, Sharangdev, whose Sangeeta Ratnakar is the textbook in South India today, he's a Kashmiri. I can go on. That civilization, in my words, was that Kashmir Valley was to humanity in the first millennium. What Silicon Valley is in the second millennium. But there's a key difference. The technologies of Silicon Valley become obsolete every moment. The technologies of Kashmir Valley are turned. So all the names uh, that Rakesh just mentioned uh, to to our listeners, uh, when you read the book, you'll see how he has weaved each one of them 
through a mechanism of story, uh, Don visits Patanjali, Charak, all of these people, Bharat, uh, with uh, with the stories and picks up the core elements of of these capabilities. And that's how she defeats five billion men. Yes. You want to talk about how does one uh, overcome those kinds of unsurmountable, uh, insurmountable odds and and conquer? Sure. So, uh, you know, every human being is engaged in a life quest, consciously or unconsciously. You, you know, you, you're on a life quest. You have certain desires, you're on a life quest. And you're going to encounter insurmountable challenges. Insurmountable challenges. And how do you solve these challenges? So, what I have done in this novel is I have picked the ultimate Sarvanash, the end of the universe, right? You can't have anything in your life that is more horrific than the whole universe is going to end. Life is going to end. So I picked that and said, let's stress test that scenario. And so the counter to that is basically what we in India call life energy. What is life energy? And what are the components of this life energy? And there's an interesting proverb in Kashmir that sort of lays the foundation of the story. And the proverb is something that may surprise you, Sandeep. The proverb is better that the mind be blind than the way of life be blind. Be blind, yes. I read that, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So we don't attach. Mind is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. So we look for things beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. And so there's consciousness, which is considered to be the lamp that lights up the mind. But at the end of the day, for the common man, it came down to stories. Mm -hmm. And this novel is written in the Adbhut Rasa. It's written in the Wonder Rasa. And uh, the reason it's written in the Wonder Rasa is that it's supposed to startle you. When you read this novel, you're going to get startled. You're going to sort of wonder what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. But the whole idea is that when you get startled, and that's why I tell everybody not have a good day. I say have a wonderful day mm -hmm. because I want to wish you a wondrous experience. And why? Because when you go in a state of wonder, you free up your mind. Mm -hmm. The moment you free up your mind, as the ancients discovered, you are able to now find possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so by visiting all these people, Dawn is able to uh, create possibilities, to see possibilities, mm -hmm. and to make the possible happen. And that's how she defeats this. And so I think the story is uh, one that will teach you at the end the three simple things, if you practice them, it's the Niti formula. Mm -hmm. Three words. Mm -hmm. The Niti formula that will equip you to run your life in a certain way where you can make anything possible and you can overcome any challenge. So what, the three-word formula? I want you to read it. See, unless you, <laughs> see if I give it away, yes. then there's just words. But if you actually read the story and understand the biochemistry and the wonder that it creates in you, yes. then it will embed itself inside you. Yes. And then mm -hmm. it's a change agent. 
and 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 the book is is so rich and so dense it's it's a book that i felt after a long time that a single reading is not going to do justice uh, i need to go back and read it a few different times to really absorb what have you packed in there it's like uh, one of those densely packed goodie box yeah. that you have to keep opening and peeling uh, so i you know there is genetics there is quantum mechanics there is um there is uh, the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system there is uh, rasa science there is so much that you are packed in but there's all mostly great stories yeah. including the oldest joke <laughs> known to humanity but yes you're right it's like any great science fiction movie you know if you go see a great science fiction movie mm-hmm. a lot escapes you yes. and then you got to go back and say i got to see this movie away yes. and that's the secret to reading dawn mm-hmm. uh just see it like a movie just let it move at fast speed you see it you just enjoy the experience don't get initially too trapped into analysis mm-hmm. uh, or sort of understanding everything you need to understand to see the experience experience it like you would a science fiction movie and then you can come back and revisit it revisit okay. um i'm going to change gears now and uh, talk a little bit about how you're bringing some of these culture and stories beyond your own writing I know you've also been instrumental in helping set up uh, IACC in uh, IAAC uh, Indo American Arts Council Arts Council uh, in, in New York. York. Your wife Anu is a board member and a very valued board member. Yes, and yeah. she is very passionate about it as well. Yeah. What are the goals uh, and why is it important? Aren't there enough opportunities for us to absorb culture in New York City already? Uh the answer i would say is there are zero opportunities but let me again give you another proverb which is fascinating as to how it's a kashmiri proverb if you permit me it says culture is a lifeboat that you carry you within you mm-hmm. even as it carries you, you within it yes it's in the book okay. i saw that yeah right mm-hmm. so how many people truly truly carry this life boat within them and it carries them i have been shocked that actually very few of us mm. do that yes we get together with our friends yes we may go to our faith depending on whatever faith we belong to but culture no Uh, music drama poetry literature dance uh, fashion art no our cultural literacy is actually at least for me was zero mm. and i would say uh, don't take it the wrong way it's not a criticism it's just an objective thing so at i see we are focus on the mission of inspiring engaging and elevating and through that comes empowerment and so we do the biggest film festival the biggest literary festival because dance festival biggest music festival and it supports the arts it supports the artists it creates experiences that bind us and make us who we are so i want everybody to be part of the iac journey Yeah and and uh, those who are watching please go and see all the events that they put together very quickly um rapid fire questions what do you prefer biryani or burger biryani okay 
what is better, a walk on the beach or party in Times Square? A walk on the beach. What would you uh, rather drive in, a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce? Uh, neither, honestly. <laughs> neither. Neither is my and type. No, neither is your type? Neither. What is your type? Eh, I would probably opt in today's day and age for a Tesla. What is the brand called Rakesh Call in as few words as possible? Oh, is one word satisfactory? <laughs> so if you check my Facebook, I use the word Questor to describe myself. Questor is a Latin term. It means somebody who has a spirit of inquiry. It was also an official title in Rome for people who were charged with responsibility for financial matters. It was also a term used for people who were warriors and would lead military campaigns. So two famous questors that you know, uh, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Mm. I consider myself a questor. On that note, thank you so much for joining and sharing uh, these wonderful stories. May your journey as Granthika take you ever forward and we hear more and more of our uh, heritage. Thank you, Sandeep, for having me. I'm delighted. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.